Hey everybody, I'm Anna McEwen. And now for Bob Switzer with the epic narrative. What, what? And welcome back everyone to the epic narrative. Why? Because that's what we are. We tell stories forever. It's a lot of fun. It's fun telling Bible stories, I'll tell you, because you never run out of material. Well, not never. I suppose eventually I will f- I will have a final season. <laughs> but at our current pace, it, it's going to be a few years. <laughs> I actually really enjoy every aspect of this of this podcast. I I love the study and I'm I'm uh you know we're rolling now in Exodus so I have no doubt I've already started reading and taking notes and making notes on Levitic uh, Leviticus and Deuteronomy. I have a feeling we may those two may kind of tie into one season just cuz Leviticus is so full of the law and I'm not afraid of the law but there's not much story to it. But be that as it may, you don't have to worry about it. Just keep coming back week after week, and we will keep talking. Because that's what we do. We do what we do. Now, we've got a bunch of people out in the desert with a, an amazing leader known as Moses. And he's part of a, you know, a... Uh, well, I guess, I mean, Aaron's still part of the leadership team, but Moses is, is leading in, in teamwork with his brother and with God. And God is letting the people know, his, has been letting the people know, that he is trustworthy, that he's kind, that he's a father figure, that he leads them and cares for them, that he protects them and provides for them. He's trying to communicate, I'm not, your, I'm not another master. I'm not a new master for you to follow. But that's really hard for servant mentalities, slave mentalities to get through their head. They really, slave mentalities really, really like a master. It's kind of like somebody who has a victim mentality. It really doesn't matter what happens to them. Somehow it ends up bad for them or not enough. And that's why it's bad for them. I I worked with somebody who was steeped, steeped in the patterns of um, victimhood. I mean, you couldn't, oh, it was brutal. And, and we, would, we would, you know, rehearse with her the good things that had happened that day. And yet they were never good things from her perspective. It was like she couldn't, she couldn't transition out of being a victim. I, I literally believed by the time we were done working with her, and we were done working with her because she, she acted out in violence and could have seriously hurt myself, uh, as well as others, but me particularly in that particular instance, not that she had done other acts earlier, but, and it was like, all right, you know what? We, we love you. We want the best for you, but, but you're clearly not safe in these public environments. I more, I offered to meet alone on, in essence on her turf, but she never wanted to see me again. Cause I was now the bad guy, but I, I literally believed in that as I rehearsed over and over again what we went through, that if we paid every bill and provided housing and cars and every kind of assistance that she, she requested, just at her, like, like genie in a bottle, I really believe 
it was so, it was so she was such a victim. I don't know. I, I don't know. I, I wanted to have some hope. I had a sliver of hope that it would change, but I really believe 99% of the time she would, she would be like, but I, I could use more. And then it would be her health. And then it would be, it just didn't matter. Everything, the victim, everything. So Getting yourself out of slavery is not an easy task. You, you make it sound like it is, right? Just break every chain. Just walk out the promise. Walk to the promised land. Get out of Egypt and walk to the promised land. This is as easy as pie. It's not. It's really not. I guess I hit that hard enough. All right. I'll probably hit it again. Uh, now, Moses is a leader. We're, we're in chapter 14 of the book of Exodus. We're just, I don't know if we're going to get far today. Let me just read the first paragraph. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites to turn back and encamp near Pi, between Migdal and the sea. <laughs> they are to encamp by the sea, directly opposite Baal Zephon, which is uh, basically a rock formation dedicated to the god Baal. Uh, Pharaoh will think the Israelites are wandering around on the land and, and in confused confusion, they have hemmed themselves or trapped themselves in the desert up against the ocean, the, de the Red Sea, and he will attack you. But because he's going to do that, I will be there for you. And once again, I will show the Egyptians that I can protect you and I love you and they should just let you go. Now, why is he doing this? Is God manipulating? As you know, we've covered this over and over again. I don't think so. Is it written as though he did? Yes. Why? Because Moses believes that God's, God is in control of all things. So when Moses is writing this, he can't give credit to anyone else because God is clearly the only one who deserves credit for everything in all the world. So on it goes. And so it rolls. Uh, Moses, leader. He didn't become the leader through politics. Interesting, right? He didn't become the leader through bloodlines, which elders and Levites all got their leadership positions because of bloodlines. He didn't get it through a religious hierarchy, which would have happened in... Most churches I know, <laughs> and in most religions I know, the leaders of the of the religion get get their role because they played well religious politics. But they got there because of the hierarchy, and they worked their way, and through attrition and favoritism and slaving away under the hierarchy, they eventually get to the top of the of the heap, or they get far enough along that the denomination appoints them the top of a new hierarchy somewhere else in the country because they control the churches, which is another whole form of hierarchy that is often um, <clears throat> hidden under the word denomination. So uh, he also didn't get it through money, which was another common way for people to get leadership. They would just pay for the chance to be in the throne room with the Pharaoh or whatever leader it was, or they'd pay for the contract contractual rights to become the most prominent merchant or tradesman in that particular realm or sheep herder, 
where they would just pay for more sheep or buy herds and and shepherds from other um, other you know trade other shepherds and herds other what do I want to say? Not farmers. They're not farmers. Cattlemen, herdsmen, whatever. Anyways, they didn't pay for the role of leader. He didn't pay for the role of leader, and he didn't get it through influential friends, which a lot of people. Right, They get in leadership positions because their friend gets a leadership position and they want le- friends around them because they don't want, they don't want people around them that, that they're not friends with. And sometimes it's because the, the person that they're asking is not only a friend but a really good guy. And I'm not against friends getting roles in leadership, but I do know, and I'll just call it the way I, my experience is, I know of churches where the only people in leadership are friends of the pastor. And some have even told me, the only role of the leaders are to be their friends. Like we, like, like <laughs> they get some title, whatever, executive board or elder board or deacon board, whatever. They, but the only people that are invited to be there are already friends of the leadership of the church. So they're not going to threaten the hierarchy. Moses didn't get his role in any one of those streams which is kind of crazy. He was humble. He was kind. He walked with his people. He had his brother alongside him that he would lean on and conversate with. Uh, But the elders and the people wanted Moses to be up front. They wanted Moses in leadership. It's interesting to me because Moses, if you remember... He could have been the Pharaoh at that time. How crazy is that? That as he's walking around, he could have been the one in charge of everybody, not just the Hebrews, but of all of the Egyptians as well. Sometimes while he's walking in this desert, that has to come to his mind. He has to be thinking, wow, I thought I would lead both, like, here I am. I'm leading a nation. I'm leading a nation. And I didn't even want to, really. I mean, I thought I did at one time, and now I don't, but I could have. Like, like what goes on in his mind? And, and it says, you know, he was humble, and he was kind, he was friendly. He was relational. But he was incredibly smart, and I'm sure academically, he put himself in positions to really be like, uh, you know, I, I see what's coming. He's wise. He's a strategist. He's he's a military uh, genius. Like there's all kinds of things. He's an artist. He's a writer. He's a he's a like all of these things come into his thoughts and in the way that he processes life. And I'm sure he was incre- incredibly alone at times, which is what made his brother so so nice to have. He lit, you know he could talk to God, but his brother was right there. And he could, he could process his life in the desert with his brother. What it was like in Midian. What, what it was like to run from Pharaoh. And his brother could tell him what was happening on that end. How the people responded. How the, how the Hebrews responded. How for many years they just thought Moses wanted to be their new Pharaoh. They didn't understand what he tried to do when he killed the taskmaster. They didn't, they didn't get it. What was so obvious to Moses was such a blur to them. It was just a new master with a new name who happened to come from one of them. It was it, it had to be 
It had to be fascinating. So as he walked with the people and he leaned on his staff and he talked to his brothers, his brother, sorry, Moses remembered what could have been. And he probably rehearsed in his mind that, you know, his bloodlines and his connections and his money and his education and his experience and his friends all could have led him to a place of leadership. And yet somehow he's in a place of leadership with none of those things. How many people have shenagled their way into places of leadership when they should have just relaxed and waited? I, 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 this resonates with me because, as you know, if you've been following it all, like I left an amazing role as a, as a, you know, on a, on a staff, but I knew God had more, and yet I wait, I wait for Him to reveal that more. But I look at Moses and I'm encouraged. It's like, well, literally, Bob, out of nowhere, it could happen. Now, I believe his, his, uh, his possibility and, and ability to be Pharaoh played big into, into the reactions of Pharaoh and the way that Pharaoh was taking advice from the people around him. I think the fact that he knew that that Moses had the pedigree, he had the wealth, he had the experience, uh, and he had the bloodlines through adoption to to be in his place. Like Pharaoh understood that, and I do think it influenced Pharaoh's uh, response to Moses. He not only was up against this God that Moses claimed to represent, but he was up against Moses who who he didn't want any of his officials to think, wow, Moses would be a better Pharaoh than Pharaoh. Maybe we should put Pharaoh out and bring Moses in. Like Pharaoh had all of those kind of politics playing around, and I'm sure Moses understood that. And sometimes I think Moses felt, as I've said it before, I just think sometimes he felt really bad for him. And I think sometimes when he's walking along the desert, and somebody makes a really nasty remark about Pharaoh. I think whether he says it or not, I believe Moses thinks to himself, "Cut, cut him a break." Uh, uh, it, he was he was in a tough spot. He was threatened by me. He was concerned by me and my presence. He didn't really understand what I wanted, and he knew that if given the role, I could lead both nations. And there was no way that was going to happen. He was a leader of both nations. So with all of that, we got to look at the people, and the people expect a Pharaoh-like leader. But of course, better, because he's one of them, right? He's of their blood. So they look to Moses, and they expect a master. They expect someone to tell them what to do. And they look at God, and they expect God to just tell them what to do. And at some level, they received the instructions about the Passover like a bunch of slaves. They were like, man, we better do this right. If we don't do this right, he going to kill us. Because from their perspective, a lot of them thought God was out killing all the, uh, all the, all the Egyptians. Because if God's not doing it, then who is? So yeah, they're scared. Some of them are scared to, to make a wrong move because they've been scared their whole life to make a wrong move. And here they are just out there moving, trying not to make a wrong move because they know what God can do. Lice, flies, frogs, locusts. Who knows what's going to jump out at you? 
darkness, death. Man, just just please just don't screw up, bro. Just don't screw up. God, that that big peril, pillar of fire come down, just fry you in, a, in an instant. Just whoosh, your tent and all your people are gone. Just whoosh. man, don't don't screw up. That's the mentality of a slave. God's trying to break this. But they expect it, right? This is what they're looking for. And they expect to fight. They expect to fight for their new leader. They expect to die for their new king. They expect to serve and earn favor with Moses and with God. The elders, they don't know any other game to play but politics. They expect Moses to want money. They expect Moses to want favors. They expect Moses to want, you know, positions and authority. And, and of course, they, re- they expect religious obligations. They want to manipulate people's behavior. That's what they do. That's what they've always done. They don't want to lose their position. They want to stay on top. They see that Moses is now the leader. They actually like Moses being the leader because it defers some of the power from them, or not power, but some of the responsibility from them. They like this God that protects them and gives them shade during the day and light and warmth at night that shows them where they're going to go, that took them away from the village. Like they, there's all these things. They're like, well, we don't have to go to war, but we could go to war. We can actually seem more ready for war if we actually don't have to go to war because now it's just words. We can just sound like we're really there. They're looking to stay on top because all they know is a hierarchy. So they want to stay on top of the hierarchy. They want to remove other people off the hierarchy. I'm sure that they are talking to Moses as often as they can. Hey, Moses, this is what I think we should do. I think we should do this. I think we should, maybe we should head this direction. And I'm, you know, I, I think I have some connections, some merchants that I know uh, that they, they've always been very friendly. I, I know I could get us, I know I, I know I could get us a deal if we head that direction. And Moses is like, well, you know, I appreciate that. I know, I know you have good connections and I appreciate your leadership, but we're going to follow the pillar. We're going to follow God. And then there's others who are like, hey, Moses, if you put me in charge of finding, uh, you know, water for everybody, I, I have good people, I have good scouts, you know, you put me in charge of water, I'll find the water. And and they're just looking, you know, they're, the, what their motive is, is power. They want authority. They want, they want to control the flow of people and, and influence people with something, a commodity that's valued. And, and Moses has to deal with this daily. And he's barely three days out of Egypt. It's It can't be easy. They are looking to stay on top. Many see Moses as almost untouchable at this point. You can't question him. Because if you do, God will... You're done. Lightning come out that cloud, fry your butt right, right where you stand, bro. Do not question that man. Even though he isn't that type of leader, that's the type of leader they expect. And they're waiting for the hammer to fall. Now, Moses knows how to lead people, right? He was trained. He gets, he leads people out of Egypt and into freedom. But he knows that living in freedom, oh, excuse me, I just banged the microphone. I need a drink, hang on. He knows that living in freedom is going to be a very long journey. 
And his main source in all this is going to be God. He needs God. Uh, he needs God to give him insight. I hit it again. Look at that. On, on how to move this, how to move the people. So, all this is going on. God gives Moses direction. Moses leads the people. Everything's moving along. In verse 4, God basically says, listen, Moses, uh, listen, Pharaoh's coming after you. He's going to feel courageous again. He's going to feel the need to get you all back. He's going to start feeling pressure. You know, when he when he kicked you out of Egypt, it was because he felt pressure from the from his leadership that they, you know, they wanted to kill him. <laughs> But now he feels pressure from, from his leadership that they have no resources left. The only resource that, that was left was their ability to have slaves. And, and if nothing else, they could have sold them all and created you know some for, form of income for the nation. But now they don't even have that because they got so wiped out by every aspect. Everywhere they turned, there was nothing. But the only thing they have left that was once plagued was the, is the Nile. The Nile still flows and the water's still clean. Everything else has been gone. All the cash crops are gone. All the firstborn kids are gone. Most of the livestock are gone. And any livestock that was still there, they gave to the Hebrews on their way out. They were like, please take it all, take it all, take it all, get out. Most, a lot of their clothing is gone. Their gold and silver has been depleted. The only thing they have left is the army. He goes, listen, Pharaoh's going to feel courageous again. And the way that this is written, it sure does look like God's pulling the strings, that the puppet master is back in style. But God doesn't puppet people, but he knows them very, very well. And he knows every possible choice and every probability of that choice and the results of every possible choice and the probability of every choice. And he knows exactly the odds of every one of them. And he knows how to communicate that. And he communicates that to Moses clearly. And when he speaks about Pharaoh, it's with great confidence. But it's not a predetermination. He doesn't predestine the conclusion of Pharaoh's choice. He just is very confident in the choice that Pharaoh's going to make. And the confidence of a creator is easy to be received by the person who's listening as a prophetic absolute. And I just think Moses projects that when he writes about God. He projects that kind of confidence. God is so confident in his ability to know and understand people that when he talks about their predicted behavior, it comes across like a predetermined behavior. Now, I don't blame the writers for this. I don't blame the translators for this, but we have to make it part of what we read when we read God's character to look like some mind-controlling puppet master so that he can be the big the big bad guy and the really, really good guy at the same time. God doesn't, doesn't behave like that. And we can't make him seem that way. Or we do God in injustice. So, as Moses, as Pharaoh, sorry, hears about Moses and the movement, he thinks to himself, wait a minute. All right, I'll let them go. I told them they could take everything and leave. But look at them. They're out there wandering around like lunatics. 
They don't know where they're going. He's probably heard about the cloud and the and the and the pillar of fire, pillar of cloud, pillar of fire, and he's probably thinking, so their God is out there, so their God is with them. So I don't have anything to fear in my in my land. Their God went with them. Now my gods can protect me. Now we can go get them because we know exactly where they are. Their God did some hocus pocus stuff, and somehow we ended up on the bad end of that. But you know what? It's been four or five days. I'm tired of being the being the one who lost this. I, I hate losing. So let's go get a win. Let's go get a win. And and they you know he hears reports. Well now they're up against the Red Sea and they're right on the other side of this cliff. Like there's this narrow passage, right? Like they're literally trapped. If we can get the army down there before they decide to leave that place, which which you know they there's stupid for them to be there to begin with, but they eventually will figure it out. But this, this, this is a you know a moment of opportunity, and most military-minded people, right? They look for that moment of, of of vulnerability in the enemy, that moment when ah, uh, if we if we attack now, like, and then oftentimes you hear about how red tape and and going through the hierarchy of obtaining permission to do certain things gets in the way, right? We always hear about the general or the commander or the captain or the sergeant that like is like, ah, screw it, I'm doing it anyways. And then they end up being the hero. Why? Because they saw the opportunity, the enemy was vulnerable, and they jumped on it. And even though it didn't go through the chain of command, everything turns out fine. And then basically the chain of command takes credit for it all. And the poor guy who actually was the hero, the courageous one, he ends up with no, none of the credit. So anyways, I kind of picture that kind of thing going on. The military advisors are like, listen, we have a great opportunity to wipe out this, wipe out these people. We could wipe out a bunch of them, take the rest of them back as slaves. And if nothing else, we have some sort of resource source to generate income again. And we have an army we have an army that can protect us because right now we have no resources and we can we can isolate ourselves and protect ourselves and we can use the slaves to rebuild ourselves but with them gone and us here alone it's it we it, things could get pretty ugly and he's wondering about it and they're like listen we we don't have a big window here they're a mobile nation and yeah, we might be able to send 600 chariots down, but once once we start attacking and all these people start scattering to the hills, like we're really not going to capture a lot of them. We might capture our gold back, but but the reality is the slaves are what we what we need for long-term, you know, resource. So they go back and forth. It's been humiliating. We've lost all our idols were were, you know, not destroyed, but made to look foolish, like we need to stand up for our gods, we need to stand up for our country, we could destroy Moses, we could destroy the, the people. And they become fixated on these immigrants. And then, of course, there there's always officials who were all for every decision the pharaohs ever made, but now, the, you know, they're also playing politics. So now they're like saying, wow, pharaoh was, you know, I, I don't, I was never for those things. I think he should have... I don't think he should have let them go. Like it was, he should have stood up. He, he passed all those other tests. Like he had one more test to pass and he could have crushed that God, but he didn't, you know, he finally caved. I mean, whatever it was like, there was, there was pressure on that end. I have to go after. Her. I have to go after him. He decides. 
the economic impact, the loss, the religious impact, the loss, the humiliation, everything. How are we going to recover without their labor? How are we going to recover without their services? The elite were having to perform mundane duties like going to get water. And as a nation, they looked foolish and they looked weak and they looked broke and they didn't look like they were ever going to recover. So what's the government's answer? Go get them. Kill them all, or at least a bunch of them. Bring the rest back. They can have their homes. Look, we can give them their homes. They can, they can go back to the life as normal, but they must help us rebuild. Look at the damage that they caused. They caused this. Because what is a government's, you know, this particular government, but most government, ruled by force and by fear. And that's what the Israelites are used to. That's what the Hebrews are used to. They're used to being controlled by fear. So here they have an opportunity, right? They're up against, they're, they're trapped, so to speak, at least visually it looks like they're trapped, up against the wall. And their former master, who they have, quote, rebelled against and now have left, is now regenerating that place of fear. This is a place where they're, I, don't, I know this sounds horrible. This is a place where they're comfortable. They are comfortable being in fear of the Egyptians, right? This is something they are used to living under. Freedom is not something they're used to living under. God has not put them in a place of fear. He's put them in a place to build relationship. Because that's the kind of God we serve. Pharaoh is, is in a position to regenerate that place of comfort. If he goes and gets them, he can put them in a place of fear, subservient, victimization, everything that they know and love. And I know a lot of you are like, that's just rude. No one would do this on purpose. We do it to ourselves all the time. As I said before, we, we take on one job after another that looks just like the last one, even though we left the last one because we couldn't stand it anymore because of the way we were treated. I mean, it's fascinating to me. But it is a habit. We, we, we can ha get positive emotional reinforcement from negative circumstances if that's what we're used to. And people, people will do it to themselves they will sabotage relationships because they're uncomfortable in the in the in intimacy, right? We talk about fear of commitment. Quote, men are always are, are afraid of commitment. But that's not always true. People are afraid of commitment. Because commitment means I'm gonna eventually have to get intimate. And I don't mean sexual, I mean intimate. There's a there's a rephrasing of the word intimacy that goes into me, you see. And if I'm going to be intimate with somebody, I'm going to have to let them know me. Now, sex will just make people think they're known. It makes them, it's like the act of intimacy without the actual emotional connection of intimacy. And, the, you know, the enemy's done a great job of stealing the power and beauty of sex and turning it into just a really fun and or animalistic activity. And now he just loves twisting it in all kinds of crap. But... I don't want to roll down that, that window and let that air in, but it is a place where 
where if, if you're comfortable in, in a negative environment, you'll create the negative envir- environment. I've been around family members, not my family members, no, but they're used to tension, right? So if everybody's having a good time, somebody will drop, you know, throw a bomb into the crowd and blow something up so that there's tension. And it's almost like they, the person who throws it out, the comment, the subject for discussion, the sudden memory of an old activity or the sudden new information that was supposed to be secret, they throw it out to create an environment that they are comfortable in and they just basically sit down and let the tension roll. Because for them, it's like, oh, whew, I feel good now. I can finally relax. Man, all those good times, all these good feelings. Oh, man, it was way too much for me. I was going crazy. It's, isn't that fascinating? You've been around like that, right? I've been around people who love to solve problems, right? I don't have any problems. But you know what they'll do? They will create problems for me so they can solve the problems. Why? Because that's what they're used to doing. That's their comfort zone. They like being com- They like solving people's problems. It doesn't matter if you have problems or not. They'll create them, solve them, give you the solutions, and tell you, okay, good, that was a great talk. And I sit back and think I didn't I didn't really say anything. I I I mean I, I told you what I was planning on doing. You told me how that could go wrong, then you told me how you would fix it, and then you told me how I should fix it, and now we're done talking, but I didn't say anything. I didn't even have a problem. I just still don't have a problem. You thought I had like it's it's crazy to me. But it happens. People are like this. So so Pharaoh is back in his comfort zone. I need, to, I need to create fear and force people to behave a certain way. And people in leadership will get that way. Whether it be pastors or bosses or, or leaders of any kind, uh, camp directors, like everything could be going along just fine, but there's a, you know, there's a shift in circumstances and their go-to response is, I've got to create fear and force behavior. I got to manipulate people, and the way I manipulate them is by creating an environment in which they are afraid not to behave a certain way. And even sometimes they're they're being forced to do good things, but they're doing it because they're afraid if they don't, something bad will happen to them, or something bad will happen to somebody else, or something bad will happen to the to the you know to the business or to the church or whatever. Like they're. Their motivation is fear, and their behavior is being controlled. And eventually, you get exhausted by that, right? And you leave. But then, if you're used to it, you look. You end up in the same sort of circumstance. But bosses and churches and all that stuff, like there's so many of them, are run just like the Pharaoh. That if this had happened, they would they would be in the same position. You're like, well, Pharaoh hardened his heart. He's a horrible person to harden his heart. You harden your heart too. You're not willing to step into freedom. Everything that's going on for the Israelites is also an invitation for for Pharaoh. Pharaoh could have just as easily sat back and said, all right, guys, I let them go because clearly their God is someone that we need to follow. But I didn't want to be told what to do by them, but we need to follow their God. We need to figure out what they know, and we need to connect to this God. We're going to leave them alone, but we're going to go after this God. He could have easily done that. But instead, God's like, listen, he's going to come after you. 
And and basically verse, you know, verse nine, that's what happens, right? The Egyptians, the Pharaoh's horses, chariots, horsemen's troops pursued Israelites, overtook them as they camped by the sea, yada, yada, yada. I can't say all the words. This is what this is what happens. It's going to happen. Pharaoh chooses to bring fear and force in order to get what he wants. And the people of God, who have now months of circumstances where God protected them, loved them, provided for them, led them, you know, responded to their prayers, brought them leadership that was worthy of following. All these things they have in their in their basket of resources to go to on how to respond to what Pharaoh is about to do, and they have to make that choice. And we're going to find out next week. No, no, Bob, if I keep going, we will be here for an hour. I can't do it. Last week was long enough. It's been 35 minutes this week. Let's just, let's just call it a day, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks so much for coming to the Epic Narrative. And I will see you here next week when <sighs> the Red Sea parts. Oh, man, that's a great part of the story. Don't go anywhere. We've got Bob Thoughts. <laughs> well, episode 24, congratulations. I think we're halfway there. I do believe. I'd have to double check, but I think we're halfway, <laughs> halfway there. Got all the outline out. It was all, I think, I think, I think we're there. Anyways, uh, really appreciate you guys just sticking with us and uh, recently, we we figured out we have over 150 episodes of, of the Epic Narrative, and someone told me that that's really unusual uh, to have, you know, uh, a podcast with that many episodes, unless you're someone who does this professionally and is probably paid to do it and has marketing firms that keep their listening subscribers up and they get paid and all this stuff. I, I obviously, at this point, that is not happening for me. We do it because we love it, really love it. And I love uh, just the opportunity to really get into and review, is God a killer? Is God truly good? And what if there were some motivations that, uh, you know, that that needed to be reviewed as far as the people that wrote the translations and did what they did. And I don't doubt their hearts or their desire uh, to be accurate. Absolutely not. But I do uh, obviously take a different stand when it comes to translation and application of that translation, because I don't think God's a killer. I think God is good. Anyway, I kind of chuckled at the, uh, at you know, in, in my episode, I said, you know, I'm probably, uh, you know, well into next season's research, and the truth is that's not true. When I recorded that uh, episode 24, it was months ago, and uh, yeah, I, I've read Leviticus, that's about it. <laughs> I am not ready to even start outlining, let alone um, just even taking notes on uh, the next season. So I don't know. There may be a bit of a delay before the next season. But the other thing is, um, 
I am really curious. I've been I've been encouraged by multiple people who have listened to this uh, podcast to do a study guide and a subscription uh, to review the life of David, to go back to season one and uh, turn it into an online uh, study group where you would, it would cost, you know, whatever, uh, it wouldn't be much, but but it would uh, be a bit of an, an investment. You'd get an online um, connection and uh, questions to, uh, to answer after listening to probably five episodes at a time. Uh, and then we would, we would do a study together and then maybe once a week, maybe once a month, uh, we would have live Zooms. Uh, we would all get together, discuss it. Uh, I would definitely love to do that with you guys, but just let me know if, you, if it's something you guys think you'd be interested in. Those of you who already have my personal contact, feel free to just do that. If you want to reach out via the bobswitzer at gmail.com, you know, you can reach out that way. But yeah, uh, that's something we're kicking around. And uh, what was the other thing that made me t- I wanted to touch on? <laughs> what were your thoughts regarding, oh, this week's episode? Um, I, you know, I didn't get into the the parting of the Red Sea. That's next week. Um, and, and it's, you know, it's awesome uh, for sure. But I hope you you enjoy the opportunity to interact with both sides of the story and some of the personal relational impact of the decisions that were being made. Uh, I don't think that Pharaoh was this god awful evil person. I think and I think he was a he was surrounded by ungodly people. He was raised quote ungodly. I don't fault him for that, but I do believe, as you know. Every single plague gave him an opportunity for a relationship with with God, and he kept choosing not to. And God kept exposing what he was saying yes to. He kept showing him the true nature of those that he did worship, and and he kept choosing not to worship God. And, And yet God continues to reach out to Pharaoh because that's the kind of God we serve. And and I do think some of the decisions he made, he was what I would call um, trapped into because of politics and because of religion. And religion always traps you into that, uh, feeling conscripted, conscripted into making, forcing you to make a decision. God doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. He's not going to force you to make a decision. And I believe those who truly represent the heart of God won't force you to make that decision either, any decision. So, yeah, that that implicates a lot of people. That implicates a lot of religious leaders, a lot of pastors, regardless of the sizes of the churches or ministries that they might run. I think God is good, and I think those who represent him should be good as well all the time. And love is freedom and trust. And God is love and he gives us freedom and he trusts us to be like him because he gives us the mind of Christ. He gives us the Holy Spirit and he says, you can do this. And I'm not gonna just rip back 
the authority and freedom I give you every time you make a wrong choice or it's not freedom and it's not trust. People who do that, you've run into them, so have I. They are not people who empower you. They are not people who truly give you authority. They are people, they are puppet masters. And again, you know how I think. You know what I think when people when people try to describe God as a puppet master. All right, all right, enough preaching, everybody. Have yourself a great day. See you next week on The Epic Narrative. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe to this podcast on any platform you use. You can also reach out to Bob for questions or booking at thebobswitzer.com or email him at thebobswitzer at gmail.com. See you next week, guys.